Well, that is quite a story. Uh, unfortunately, if you're one of our kids who are here with us, you don't get to stay to hear the rest of it because it's time to dismiss our kids for children's programming. So that's kids kindergarten through fifth grade. If you want to head back where Miss Kim is, uh, you can head to your program. Um, we'll just give them a minute to do that. While we're going, does anybody, anybody know any good jokes or anything like that? I've got, I've got one that our daughter Maggie told us yesterday. So an older lady walks into the bank, and she walks up to the teller, and she said, yeah, I'm just here because I need somebody to help me check my balance. So I pushed her over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're raising them right at the King House. Um, so anyway, going back to the video with Babe Ruth, it's quite a story, right? I mean, they say that hitting a Major League Baseball is the hardest thing to do in any of the different professional sports. So when you stop and think about the fact that, that Babe Ruth was able to literally point out the spot where he was going to hit his home run, and then on the very next pitch do that, it, it seems amazing. As a matter of fact, it seems so difficult that there are a lot of people who doubt whether or not that happened. If we had showed the rest of the video, there are some people that say, well, that wasn't really what was going on. You know, there's some kind of urban legend around it. But, but for the sake of argument, let's say it did happen. Let's say he really was able to call his shot. Uh, think about what that would do for the rest of the team as they kind of went on together as a team. Imagine you're in the next game, and maybe you're down by a run. But there's a runner on second, and Babe Ruth is getting ready to go up to hit, and he turns to you and says, don't worry, I'm going to hit a home run, we're going to come in, we're going to win this game. You probably have a lot of confidence that he was going to do that, right? Because you've just watched him do something that seemed impossible, make an impossible promise and deliver on it. And once somebody has promised the impossible and done it, well, even if they promise to do something that's really, really hard, I mean, that kind of pales by comparison. If, if somebody promises the impossible and pulls it off, you can have confidence that they're going to come through on any promise that they might make. So what I want you to do is to hang on to that idea for just a minute. And go ahead and turn with me in the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you for any reason, there are some red ones in the seats in front of you. We actually just were finally able to put those back this week after a year and a half. Um, but I forgot to put the screen number, the page number up on the screen. But if you can go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible for any reason, we're going to put the passages that we're going to look at up on the screen so you can track along with us. But as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about where we're going today. Um, this morning, we're kicking off a new sermon series that we're calling Turning Points. And over the course of the summer, we're going to have a number of different people come in and preach and share, but each week, the person who's preaching is going to select one passage of the Bible uh, that they feel marks a turning point and talk about it. Uh, maybe it's a passage that they think really marks a, a turning point in the story of the Bible. Or maybe it's a passage that just really spoke to them at a critical moment in their life. You know, it became a turning point in their understanding of God, in their relationship with God, in their life and walk with God. But in this series, we're going to be talking about what I think are some really key texts in the Bible. And this morning, I want to kick this off by looking at what I think is the single greatest turning point in human history, uh, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the text that I had you turn to talks about how much of a turning point that truly is. But to get into that, first, though, we have to ask ourselves a question. Um, what, what does the resurrection have to do with Babe Ruth? You know, on the surface, it may not be much of a connection, but there, there is one. Because if you stop and think about it, right, when Babe Ruth called his own shot and then made it, he was doing something that seemed impossible. Well, it turns out that Jesus did the same thing. 
many different times in his life, he told his followers that he was going to be executed, but then he would be raised back to life. He was promising that the impossible was going to happen. And if you read through the different biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, we know them as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they're just biographies of Jesus. One of the things that you realize over and over again is that Jesus is always doing this. He's constantly talking about how he's going to come back to life. So in Mark 9, for example, there's one of these. Uh, he's going along, and he's talking to his closest disciples, and he says this. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him, and after three days, he will rise. That's a prediction that he's going to come back to life. And in fact, this is the kind of thing, Jesus did this so often that when he was actually executed, the people who had plotted for his death, they were afraid that his disciples were going to come and steal his body to make it look like this promise had come true. So he had said this so often that the religious leaders who plotted his death, they actually bring it up to the Roman authorities. So it says that the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region. And they say, sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. And they, they mention the fact that Jesus was constantly referring to the fact that he'd come back to life. They actually mention it so that Pilate will put some extra guards around the tomb and sort of they're trying to get some reinforcements there. But either way, it's clear that Jesus talked about this a lot. It was a promise he often referenced. And here's why that's important. Right? When Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, he was calling the greatest home run shot that was ever hit. Right? He was making a promise that was absolutely impossible. He said, I will defeat death. And now that's got to be a lot harder to do than hitting a home run out of Wrigley Field. Uh, but you stop and think about this promise that I'm going to die and I will come back to life. It's so impossible sounding. It's so outlandish that you think, okay, if by some chance he was actually able to predict that and then do it, well, gosh, if he could do the impossible, well, then it turns out he could probably do anything. And if Jesus can prove that he can do the impossible, then that can give us confidence, right? We can trust that he is going to come through on any other promise that he might make, even if that promise seems a little hard to believe. We can trust his promises. And that is exactly how the early leaders of the church understood what was going on with the resurrection. So, for example, one of the early church leaders was a man named Paul. And we have in our New Testament a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And in that church, he starts talking about the resurrection. They had some questions about the resurrection. So in the longest chapter in that letter, it's like 58 verses long, he talks about the resurrection and he talks about how important it is. And for Paul, as we're going to see, everything, literally everything about our faith rises and falls on whether or not the resurrection actually happened. For Paul, the resurrection becomes the turning point in, in history and in faith and our belief. Everything hinges around that. And what I want us to do this morning is just look at how Paul spells that out. So starting in verse 1, we're going to read this together. Look what he says. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Right? I want to remind you of the core truth about what Jesus did, which you've received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Now, how's that for kind of a dramatic opener for the chapter? He's like, hey guys, are you paying attention? Because I want to remind you of what is central to your faith. I want to remind you on what is the very foundation on which you stand, the gospel itself. And if you've ever wondered how Paul defines the gospel, he very conveniently does that for us in the next verse. In verse 3, he keeps going. So he summarizes it. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Again, this is how important it is. It's first importance. He says, This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. 
He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Right? That's Paul's summary of the saving work that God did for us in Christ right there. Jesus died for our sins, just as the scriptures predicted, and he was raised back to life, just as the scriptures predicted. And then Paul keeps going on. Now, he realizes this is, this is a big claim, right? It's not like today dead people stay dead. Dead people stayed dead 2,000 years ago as well, so he realizes, I'm making a big claim here that somebody's come back to life. I should probably give some evidence of this. So he begins to list out all these names, name after name after name of people who had actually seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. And a lot of these people were still alive at the time that letter was written. So he starts listing them, right? He says, and then he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then to the 12, the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That fallen asleep is kind of Paul's way of talking about people who have died. But he says, most of these eyewitnesses are still alive. Then he appeared to James, who's actually the brother of Jesus, and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, I, I think that Paul is putting this list in there in case there are people who've got doubts about this. It's like he's saying, look, I know the resurrection is hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe that a dead person came back to life. So if you've got questions, here's hundreds of people that you could go and talk to. Hear what the, their experience was. See what they saw. Now, just as an aside, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and you have a hard time believing that the resurrection could actually happen, I get where you're coming from. In fact, you may be a follower of Jesus, and you're still not fully convinced that the resurrection happened. It's a different question. Um, but if you're in this camp of doubting whether or not this could be, I mean, it, it's reasonable that you would think that. Because how often in our life, in our daily experience, do we see dead people come back to life? It just doesn't happen. And I'm not going to try to convince you that, you know, there's lots of historical evidence for the resurrection, although there is. That's kind of beyond the scope of this sermon. What I want to point out to you is what Paul is doing here in this text. Paul is not trying to convince people that the resurrection happened because there were a lot of Old Testament prophecies that said so. Paul wants you to know that he believes the resurrection happened because he saw Jesus with his own eyes. He became convinced that Jesus actually delivered on this impossible promise because not just him, but there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who had seen it. And in fact, if you want a convincing piece of evidence that this really happened, look no further than James. Right? Remember in that list, Paul is listing everybody out and he mentions that Jesus appeared to James? Well, James is the half-brother of Jesus and he becomes convinced that Jesus is God. Now, I have a question for you. How many of you have a brother? Or a sister, right? How many of you have a sibling, right? Somebody that you grew up with and you know everything about their life. Ask yourself this question. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he's actually God? It's kind of a tough sell, right? Like I have one sister, right? I've got an older sister, Tammy. She was here visiting this week on vacation. Um, this is actually a picture of us. Uh, this is, I think I was 12. This is Mike in all of his middle school glory right there. I tell you what. Now just look at this picture. Do you think there is anything, go back to the picture for just a second. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't. Do you think there is anything that I could possibly do to convince my sister there on the left that that mug on the right is God incarnate? Right, there's just no way that that would happen. It seems impossible. So for me, the fact that Jesus' own brother came to believe that he came back to life and that he was God, man, that's kind of like all the evidence I need. It certainly adds to the argument. But one thing about what Paul's doing, for God's sake, you can take that picture down now. Um, <laughs> so Paul is putting all of these names in here so that people who have doubts can do their own research and come to their own conclusions, which is I want to encourage all of you to do that as well. 
So even if you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're convinced that the resurrection happened, but you've never done the work to actually look at the historical evidence for the resurrection, I would really encourage you to do that so that you know what's there, so that you can have conversations with people about that. And if you are here this morning, if you're watching us online and you're just exploring the claims of Christ for yourself, I really do think you owe it to yourself to do the work to look into the historical evidence for the resurrection. Because when you really start looking, there's a lot of really convincing proofs out there. But let the evidence guide you in the decision you make. And if you're not sure where to start with that, if you need some suggestions, I would encourage you to reach out to the office this week. You can just email us at office at suburbanchurch.com. And we'd love to connect you with some resources that could help you maybe take that next step in your journey towards Jesus and understanding this. Um, But like I said, that's kind of an aside. Because... What you and I believe about the reality of the resurrection is really not germane to what Paul is doing here. What you need to know for the sake of Paul's argument is that he absolutely was convinced that the resurrection happened. And what's important to note here is that for Paul, absolutely everything about our faith rises and falls on the resurrection. So the first part of the chapter, he's talking about the resurrection. And look at how he he sums this up when he gets to verse 17. He says, okay, let's assume the resurrection didn't happen. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. And beyond that, right, that's for people who have a faith in Christ who are alive. What about people who had put their faith in Christ and are dead? He says, well, those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost, right? Because they put their faith in Christ. He's not really alive. They're not coming back to life. They're still rotten in the grave. And then look at his last line here. It says, if it's only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, you see this connection that Paul's making, right? For him, it's all about the resurrection. If it never happened, then everything else about Jesus and his life that we put our faith and trust in, it's all lies, right? It's futile. And we, of people, all the people on earth, people who believe this happened, we're like the biggest suckers that human history has ever seen, and we should be pitied. And that's why I picked this text to preach from when we're starting this series about turning points. Because for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus now becomes the hinge point of human history, right? If the resurrection didn't happen, then Christian faith is pointless. But if the resurrection did happen, oh my gosh, that changes everything. It means that history has turned a corner. It means that the resurrection becomes a solid foundation we can build our life and faith on. That's where Paul was starting at the beginning of the chapter. He says, let me remind you of the gospel of the resurrection that you have taken your stand on. Right, Paul argues that history is forever changed because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is something that we just intuitively, if you've ever read a Western history book, you know that this is true. Because think about how we talk about time, how we mark time. We talk about things being either B.C., before Christ, or A.D., right? Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord. The people who put our calendar together realized that history changed when Jesus was here on earth. So they actually use that as the dividing line for how we in the Western world record history. And what is it about the life of Jesus? What is it that changed things? At least from Paul's perspective, what changed things was the resurrection. So if the resurrection is the turning point, I think a question that we need to ask ourselves is, Okay, what difference does that make, right? For those of us who happen to live on this side of the turning point of history, what what are the implications for that? And again, I think the implications for that, it really goes back to that, that video clip that we started out with, to the idea about this impossible promise, right? Because if Jesus promised that he would come back to life and he pulled that off, well, then we can have confidence 
that everything else that Jesus promised is going to come true as well. That all of the other promises that we see in the Bible, we can trust that God is able to come through on those. And that's exactly the point that Paul goes on to make in this chapter. So at the end of verse 17, he's like, well, what if the resurrection didn't happen? And this is this, and your faith is useful, and you know, all this. But he obviously believes the resurrection did happen, because in the very next verse he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And for Paul, that's it. That's, that's the reason that we can have confidence in the promises that Jesus made. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, because he came back to life, because he called his own shot, we can have confidence that every other thing that he promised to do, even if it seems impossible or very difficult or we're not sure how it could touch our lives and really make a difference for us, we can trust that those things are going to come true as well. So this morning, I just, I just want to encourage you by reminding you of some of the other promises that we have from God in the Bible. Promises that, based on the fact the resurrection is real, we know that we can take to the bank. Okay? And the first one of those is actually found at the very end of this chapter. So if you go to the end of this chapter to verse 58, um, Paul starts out with the promise. He actually starts out by using this one little word, therefore. And therefore is one of those words that it connects what he's about to say with everything that he said before. So really he's saying, okay, everything that I said about the resurrection in the last 57 verses, here's what I want you to do with that. He says, therefore... My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you, right? Stand firm. Have confidence in the words and the promises of Jesus. We're on the other side of history's greatest turning point. But then he says this. He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, that's that promise that we can take to the bank. When we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, we can trust that the work that we do in the Lord is not in vain. Right? It's going to have results. It's going to get things done. It's going to change lives and communities because it's the resurrection power of God that is working in that. And, and that's true whether you see results in the moment or not. I mean, think about some of the, the efforts that we're engaged in as a church. Like We feel like God is calling us to reach out and to make a difference in our community in some pretty intractable problems. Right, so you think about like the, the crisis that there is in Oregon with foster care. You think about the work that we do to partner with DHS and foster families. Like we, we, we invest in that. But sometimes you wonder, man, I'm giving and giving and giving, but is anything happening here? Or I think about so many of you that I know who, who work in the secular marketplace. You work in our schools and business. And, and part of what God is calling you to do is to go out and, and to carry his light there. And you do that. But you do that in a world where you just like, as, as Terry's point, you just feel like you're getting stomped down all the time. And you're like, is this making any difference at all? Or think about relationships. Think about friends that you have that you're trying to, to influence for Christ. Or family members, people that you care deeply about. Maybe people you've been praying for for years. We can give and give and give to these relationships. And sometimes we walk away and we think, am I just wasting my life? <laughs> is this really making a difference? Is anything happening here? But verses like this give us the confidence to know that even if we don't see a lot of results in the moment, God is at work, right? God takes our little faithful efforts. He takes the seeds that we plant and his power, his power just washes through those things and works in them to bring about his results in his timing, right? So we can live because of the resurrection. We can live and we can work with the full confidence that what we do for the Lord matters, like, that's one of those promises that we can live in because we live on this side of the resurrection. But here's another one that I love. Uh, as Jesus was preparing to leave the world, he gave this incredible promise to his terrified and his anxious friends, right? They were just desperate. They did not know what life was going to look like without him. So he said this. 
He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. How many of us need to hang on to this promise today? Right? How many of us at times in life, especially in the world today, we feel anxious, we feel a lack of peace? Right? Maybe there are financial struggles that you're going through. Uh, maybe there's something going on in a relationship. Maybe, maybe you made the mistake this morning of actually reading the news, right? Because basically anything that you see in the headlines, pretty much any day of the week, is just going to give you anxiety and take peace away. But again, if Jesus called his own shot, if he said, I'm going to come back to life, and he did, and we believe he did, and Paul believed he did, well, then this promise about his peace is true as well. We don't have to let our hearts be troubled. We don't have to be afraid because he's with us. And his peace then can be the bedrock and the anchor of our lives. I mean, maybe, maybe the entire reason that you are here this morning is because you needed to be reminded of that. Right? Maybe that's why God has you here. You needed that word from him to take root in your heart and mind, and you needed to carry that with you as you go out into this week differently. That is a promise that we can build our life on. Um, here's another great promise we can put our trust in. Maybe you've lost somebody you love recently. Or maybe you know what's going to happen, right? Maybe you've gotten that doctor's report and you know that there's just down to the last few weeks. Um, this idea of losing somebody, that's, that's where our family has been recently. Uh, just a couple of months ago, one of my wife's uncles passed away after a long, long struggle with dementia. And, you know, it was, it was so hard over the years to watch this man who was this brilliant doctor, right, just lose so much of what made him him. So there was this ongoing grief as we watched Joe decline through the years. As you would see him at the next family reunion, he wouldn't remember your name anymore. And then when he passed away, that grief changed to a different kind of grief, right? At the actual loss of his life. So many of us know that feeling, that feeling of grief and loss, don't we? Well, here's a promise that you can take confidence in this morning. In, in a different letter that St. Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Again, those who have died believing in him. You see, loss and grief touches all of us. There, there's no escaping that in our world. But because of the resurrection, because we live on this point, uh, this side of history's turning point, we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Right? If Jesus called his shot, if he came through on that promise, then he's going to deliver on this promise as well because we live when we live. We can trust in his promise that one day everybody who's died in him will be reunited in a place where there isn't any more pain, where there isn't any more suffering, where our minds and our bodies work the way they were designed to work. And, and we as Christians, we don't believe that just because it's this little, oh, this little pie in the sky myth that you know, at least it makes us feel better for the, the few meager days that we live out here on the earth. No, we believe that's real because God promised it's going to happen. The same God who promised I'm going to die and come back to life and pulled that one off, well, he promised this as well. And this is a God who has shown us that no promise, no matter how difficult it might seem, is impossible for him. So be confident in that this morning, right? We don't grieve like those who have no hope, but we also don't have to live like those who have no hope. When we face illness or health challenges or just all the different struggles, the depression, the anxiety, the things that come our way, we can face those with confidence, the confidence that comes from being loved by a God who told us to be strong and courageous, 
Do not be terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Right? So think about what that means for how we live. When we look at the, the economy or we look at our checkbook, right? we begin to, to worry, are we going to have enough? We don't have to live the way the world lives, which is to, to shut down and to not give and to hoard for ourselves. Right? Instead, we can choose to continue to be generous in how we reach out to others and care for the needs of others because we serve a God who told us that my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, we don't have to worry the way the world does. We don't have to grieve like the world does. We don't have to live like the world does. And that is all for one simple reason. Jesus is not dead. He is alive, just like he promised that he would be. So in just a moment, we're going to close with a final song. And actually, the, the words of that song come from this Old Testament benediction, that the Lord bless you and keep you. But as you listen to those songs, as you sing those words, I would actually encourage you to sing those as, as a promise that the Lord will bless you and keep you and guard you and his face will shine upon you and give you his peace. But as we, before we do that, I want us to stop and pray. And I just, I want to encourage you both now as we're praying and at some point today, whatever your schedule is like, carve out some time to sit down and actually think, actually pray about what we have talked about today, how that, what that means for you, for your life. Right? Invite the Holy Spirit to help you see, okay, which of these promises are promises that you need to really let soak down in your mind and heart so you can believe them. And maybe it's not one from the sermon. Maybe it's one of the dozens and dozens of other promises that we find from God in the Bible. But just take some time to remember that you live on the other side of history's greatest turning point. And because of that, you can have the absolute confidence that God will come through on every promise that he has made. It's like we sang in that opening song, if you were here for that point. It says, in Jesus, if it comes from another line in Paul's letters, in Jesus, every promise is yes and amen. Every promise is and will be fulfilled in him. So invite the Holy Spirit this week to help you know what you need to do with what we've talked about today. Would you pray with me? Father, we really are grateful that we can gather together around your word. Um, and that what we see in your word, it, it really speaks into the actual reality that we live in. Uh, we are so grateful, Lord, for the resurrection. It, it just, it's changed our world. It's changed human history in so many ways. But one of the real practical ways that it has changed things is it really can help us live with confidence that all these other promises that you see scattered throughout the Bible, that those are not just empty words. Those are not things that people made up to make themselves feel better. To, to give them some hope just for this life. No, Lord, this is the truth of who you are. And that these promises come from the heart of a God who loves us and, and wants what is best for us. So, Lord, I just I want to invite you in these moments as we pray, uh, as we sing, and as we, we leave this place and go about our day, I just want to invite you to speak to each human heart that is here and help them know, Lord, what, what, which of these promises is really going to meet them where they are is going to address the fears that we face, uh, help with the stress or the worry or the particular anxiety that we might have. It's going to give us the confidence that we need to keep going. It's going to give us the encouragement to not give up in hopeless-looking situations. God, I, there's a lot of people here today, and I have no idea what's going on in all of their lives. But you do. <laughs> and you can speak to each of us. So God, would you just give us the gift of your voice? Would you give us the gift of your wisdom? Would you give us the gift of your presence and help us know what you are calling us to do with what we've heard today? 
We don't want to be people in James' letters who just listen to the word and don't do anything with it. We want to be people who listen to the word and put it into practice. So help us know, Lord, what promise from you we need to, to build on today as we head out into this week. Amen.